0: He tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Kia
1: ora. I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. It's
2: 1945.
1: The final days of the Second World War. After years of fighting, Kiwi troops are relaxing in the Italian city of Trieste. Everyone knows the war in Europe must end soon. But according to the Auckland Star, one final push is needed to right a wrong committed by the most famous grave robber of New Zealand history. Unless it has been destroyed by war, the largest and best collection of New Zealand ethnographical and zoological objects in Europe lies in the State Natural
3: History Museum of Vienna. Some parts of the collection, more particularly ethnographical specimens, were obtained by downright
1: theft and by other methods hardly less ethical.
3: Surely... The government will fail in its duty if it does not try to bring back to the Dominion that part of the collection which, with unblushing candour, was described as rich booty by Andreas Reischek,
0: the German-Austrian who gathered it.
1: So, who is this Andreas Reischek? He's not well known today, and he was more than 40 years dead even at the time that article was written. But Reishek's biography, Yesterday in Maori land had been published relatively recently and had created something of a scandal. It gave a first-person account of his voyage to New Zealand and his collection of birds and artefacts, including his most brazen act, the theft of Māori corpses from a cave in Kafir in the 1880s, including the remains of a Tainui chief. It's especially shocking when you read what the book quotes him saying to the king before carrying out that grave robbing.
3: I could see they were an intelligent and brave race who had unfortunately been led astray and betrayed, and I could see that they now entertained hate and mistrust of all Europeans. Some come to you sweetly, telling you that they are your friends, but they're only on the watch for what they can get out of you and are really laughing at you.
1: Reishek seems like a hypocrite of the very worst kind. There's a lot of truth in that. There's also a lot of fiction, because while yesterday's in Maori lands author was called Andreas Reischek, it wasn't the same Andreas who came to New Zealand in 1877. It was his son, Andreas Reischek Junior,
2: and he was very much taking a lot of journalistic license in creating something that would be popular rather than scientific. And the accounts that we find in those publications are. partially fictional, in my opinion.
1: That's Sasha Nolden, a researcher and accredited translator who's been fascinated by Reshek for years. He even has a set of Andreas' own binoculars, which were gifted to him by Reshek's descendants in Austria, who he's interviewed in depth about their notorious ancestor. The family gave Sasha access to Reshek's own written notes, and he says they paint a very different picture from the breathless account of yesterday's in Māori land. To tell the true story of Reishek, we need to go to Austria too, where Andreas grew up, raised by the widow of the head gardener on the grounds of Weinberg Castle. And it was on those grounds that Andreas found his life's passion – taxidermy.
2: He would go out into the woods and carve animals in wood, and I think it's these carved animals that made a positive impression and ended up him being recognised for his ability to replicate from life. And I think it's something that was recognised throughout his career, that his taxidermy was something that allowed him to represent the animals in a lifelike sort of stance.
1: Personally, I find stuffed animals a bit creepy. But at the time, it was a highly prized skill. There weren't many zoos back in the mid-1800s and even fewer David Attenborough documentaries. So for most people, the closest they'd ever come to seeing exotic animals in the flesh was stuffed and mounted in a museum. And a museum is where Reishek gets his first big break. He comes to the attention of Ferdinand von Hochstetter, a famous naturalist at the Imperial Natural History Museum who had worked extensively in New Zealand. A number of our animals actually named after him, including the takahe, or to give its scientific name, the Porphyrio hochstetteri. Hoschteter gets a letter from another famous Austrian scientist, Julius von Haast, that's the guy the Haast Eagle is named after, asking for a new taxidermist to work with him at Canterbury Museum. Reishek gets offered the job and within three months he's on his way to New Zealand, leaving the wife he'd married less than a year ago behind. That marriage is probably part of the reason Reishek was keen to leave Austria so quickly.
2: To put it simply, Reishek really didn't get on with his mother-in-law uh, his mother-in-law owned a small business in Vienna and the daughter was expected to work there. And it would seem very likely that they had had a child together, but the child had deceased. Reichek probably put some of the blame on that tragedy, on that family tragedy, on his mother-in-law, which is difficult for us to sort of find evidence for, but certainly in the letters that's very much what he indicates. And he was grieving and I think it was a way of escaping from what was a very unhappy situation where he felt the, his mother-in-law was taking too much control over his life. He wanted to get away.
1: It's a hard voyage to New Zealand. Baishik had seasickness so bad he was coughing up blood. But he makes it, and the minute he arrives, he gets to work. Haast
2: was accumulating large numbers of skins, and he needed to have them mounted for the opening of the new part of the museum. So by the time that Reishek finally arrived in early 1877, he had a vast um, depot, a storeroom basically, full of these skins.
1: And we're not just talking like birds and stuff. There was an elephant skin which he had to mount. Absolutely. Many of these came from
2: overseas. They were received in exchange uh, from overseas dealers. Very challenging um, under the circumstances, uh, given that this material wasn't in a frozen state.
1: After two years of hard graft, Reishek finishes his work at the Canterbury Museum. His contract is complete, and he's free to return home to Austria. But he doesn't. He stays on in New Zealand for another ten years. Hostetter and Haast realise that as well as being a skilled taxidermist, Reishek is an excellent hunter. The perfect person to extend the collection of birds and other items at the Austrian Museum. For Reyshek it's the opportunity of a lifetime. If he can amass a big enough collection he can follow in his steps and return to a hero's welcome in Austria. But before he can get to work, Andreas needs a partner, a dog that he names Caesar, which at times seems almost supernaturally intelligent, so much so that one Maori Reyshek met refused to believe he was a dog at all. He said Caesar must be a man's spirit and a dog's skin. And as they travel together all over New Zealand hunting birds, Caesar saves Reishek's life multiple times.
2: When he was on one of the offshore islands in the Haraki Gulf, uh, he had been severely injured by a tree falling on his head. Um, the head injury was something that he was operated on repeatedly over the remainder of his life. And the dog basically dragged him out of the surf and provided for him as he
1: um, recovered and it would also catch birds alive and bring them to him completely unharmed. Yeah, he certainly uh,
2: presents in a remarkable accounts of Caesar being able to catch even butterflies and coming to him and opening his jaws and the butterfly would fly out and the dog would look very disappointed because his master hadn't actually caught the butterfly that Caesar had gone to such effort to procure for him.
1: Reishik's plan is to collect stuff and mount every New Zealand bird. But even back in his day, our native birds had been mostly wiped out, thanks to the introduction of cats, weasels, stoats and ferrets. Reishek was often forced to sail to some of the most desolate and remote parts of this country in search of birds. Several times he was shipwrecked on offshore islands and waited for days, half-starved, to flag down a passing ship. One time he was in a remote part of Fiordland, so plagued with biting flies, they literally drank two birds he'd caught to death. Perhaps for that reason alone, we shouldn't be surprised that Reyshek was a vocal about the destruction of New Zealand's bird life.
2: He certainly warned against the introduction or acclimatisation of stoats and weasels. Uh, he presented a paper on that, which was well received by the press. Yeah, He certainly found that as time went by, revisiting certain areas, many of the species had disappeared and increasingly he was having to visit offshore islands in order to secure the specimens.
1: This is where we get to the fundamental contradiction in Andres Reishek because at the same time he's advocating conservation of New Zealand's birds, he's also contributing to their destruction. Famously, he tracked down the last surviving population of Stitchbird, or Hihi, on Little Barrier Island. And then he shot them. It used to be said he shot 150 birds. That's definitely an overestimate, but he did shoot a lot. And while he was among the first to advocate that Little Barrier Island become a nature reserve, it's difficult not to see him as reckless.
2: I think from today's perspective, much of the collecting of the time seems reckless I mean or wasteful Uh, there are there are many accounts of him observing birds um, and then he simply states and I shot them and certainly that's that's painful to read to them to me
1: (laughs) In some ways, his actions were typical for scientists at the time. A classic example is the great orc, a kind of diving bird, a bit like a penguin, which used to live all around northern Europe and America. When the great orc was declared endangered in 1775, there was a rush to kill and preserve as many animals as possible for science. Huge bounties were offered for orc skins, and by 1844, there were no great orcs left.
2: He was basically working along the lines of science at at the time which was to say we would preserve a record of these natural phenomena, Uh, we will preserve specimens in our museum collections for science for the purpose of studying what is inevitably to them going to disappear. For many species you could see there was there was absolutely no hope once the mustelids Um, stoats, weasels and ferrets had been introduced, he could see there was no way that many of those flightless birds or tamer species um, would be able to survive in those areas.
1: And in the eyes of 19th century science, it wasn't just New Zealand's animals that were doomed to extinction. It was also its native people, or at least those people's culture. Raishik was determined to secure artifacts of Maori culture. Some were given to him freely by Maori or by museums, but others were not. He did take from abandoned past sites. He saw these materials as
2: being um, as he saw them as decaying because these sites were abandoned, they were no longer occupied. And therefore he was he thought that he would preserve some of these examples of ethnographic ethnological material for posterity for museum
1: collections but some of these items were things that he were told explicitly not to take that people had told him that there was that, that some of these sites were tapu and that he was not allowed to go there
2: and that of course is unforgivable
1: the holy grail of Andreas's plundering was to find mummified human remains. But to do that, he had to get into the king country, which was no easy task. The Waikato Wars had only recently ended when Reyshek visited New Zealand, and the king country was full of people who'd happily kill any European who strayed into their territory without permission. But Reishek was lucky. He was Austrian, and Māori and the king country had fond memories of Austrians. Two king country Māori had even visited Austria in 1859. The emperor gave them a printing press which they took back to New Zealand and used to print one of the first ever Māori-language newspapers, Te Hokioi. Those two Māori returned with very fond memories of their
2: experiences and the way they'd been received and Reishek was seen as being non-British. He was basically seen as acting on his own behalf and they trusted him.
1: On his first trip to the king country, Andreas proved worthy of that trust, only collecting birds and other items which were gifted to him by Māori. But while he was there, he heard stories of four perfectly preserved mummies in Kafia, here's the story of the theft according to Yesterday's in Māori Land, which as we said is a problematic source, but this segment at least is thought to be fairly accurate.
3: I searched high and low for those mummies, but for a long time had no success. Only at last, when I got right into the heart of Māori Land, the king country, did I succeed in finding any. Two Māori who had become sufficiently Europeanized to be willing to renounce their national and religious principles for gold led me one night to the cave in Kafia. There I found four mummies, of which two were in a state of perfect preservation. The undertaking was a dangerous one for discovery might have cost me my life. In the night I had the mummies removed from the spot and then well hidden. During the next night they were carried still farther away until they had been brought safely over the boundary of Maori land. But even then I kept them cautiously hidden from sight right up to the time of my departure from New Zealand.
1: When I first read the story, my initial reaction was utter disgust. But Sasha Nolden, while agreeing that Reishek's actions were unforgivable, also thinks they were understandable.
2: I think he was um, very strongly encouraged to do these things, as were many collectors in the field um, who were all trying to please certain masters. In this case, they were museum directors who had certain certain wish lists of material they wanted to have procured, and Reishek in many
1: cases was the little man who was securing material that was wanted. What's more, Sasha thinks Reishek failed to understand the significance of human remains to Māori and how disturbing or stealing them would degrade the mana of their descendants.
2: In Austria at the time, many, many burial sites were being opened up and excavated. Prominent people there, human remains are on display in glass coffins in churches Uh, there is that respect for those who have passed on there is that appreciation of the value of of human remains including skeletal remains however it's completely different from tapu and i think that's where reishek didn't go all the way to fully appreciating what was happening
1: you might think that Māori today would be totally outraged by the theft, but John Kati, who lives in Kafia and is actually a descendant of one of the people whose bodies Andreas is said to have taken, is surprisingly philosophical about the whole thing.
3: I regard that as um, something that happened in the past, no different to to other things that, that have occurred to Māori uh, from those times uh, and today. It's history, I, I guess, as, as you... Might put it.
1: There are a few reasons why Māori might feel less than outraged about Reishek's actions. For one, King Tafiao gave Reishek permission to enter the king country, and some Māori are anxious to shield him from criticism over that decision. For another, Reishek had some local help when he took those bodies.
3: He wouldn't have got in there unnoticed. Our um, history records that about three people that were named whom he um, bribed, And they were all half-caste people who were quite versed in both the European way of life and understood Māori well. He befriended them also and um, was able to get their confidence that uh, what he was doing would be okay.
1: Also, the theft of a few bodies pales in comparison to other injustices committed against Māori at this time. See last week's episode about Thomas Russell for more details on that. Anyway... Shortly after escaping the king country, 12 years after arriving in New Zealand, Andreas returns to Austria with his collection. It's enormous, 14,000 specimens in total. But he doesn't end up getting the wealth and fame he'd hoped for when he returned. The setback for him was
2: that Ferdinand von Hochstetter, who had basically sent him out to New Zealand, had passed away in 1884. So by the time... Aishek returned from New Zealand after 12 years. In 1889, uh, he was less well-known.
1: He'd hoped to sell his collection to the museum for the equivalent of about $2.5 million in today's money, but lacking the high-level contacts he needed, he was only able to get about half a million. It might not seem like a lot for 12 years of hard graft, but it's enough for him to live out the rest of his days in relative comfort with the wife he'd left behind when he went to New Zealand and the son who went on to write a very problematic book about his father's life.
2: He managed to secure himself a very, very fine villa on the banks of the Danube River, high up on a cliff overlooking the Danube in his native Linz. He was very interested in continuing his work with museums and he was given the position of a curator in setting up the new museum at Linz and he worked day and night again in, in his laboratory as a taxidermist. I mean, right through to near the end of his life he was still uh, writing up his New Zealand experiences and all but one, all but the very last of his publications still relate to New Zealand.
1: New Zealand troops never did march on Vienna to demand the return of Andreas's collection after World War II. But thanks to years of painstaking negotiation, the most sensitive items began to be returned to New Zealand in 1985. The latest to be returned was a mummified child, which came back to New Zealand in 2015. The birds and the other artefacts, they're still in Austria's State National History Museum, where they make up a large part of the single biggest collection of New Zealand material outside of this country. So this is the last episode of Black Sheep, but I can tell you that thanks to your support, I'll be back next year with more stories. The executive producer, Tim Watkin, and I are still trying to work out if we want to mix things up a bit or just push on with more stories of villainous and controversial characters from our history. Trust me, there are many, many more We'd actually really love it if you could tell us your thoughts about what you might like to see changed or what you want to stay the same or which black sheep you'd like to hear about in the future. You can email me at william.ray, that's spelled R-A-Y, at radionz.co.nz, or you can tweet me at wimray, that's at W-I-M-R-A-Y. And finally, thanks so much for listening. This podcast has regularly been top of the New Zealand chart on iTunes, and that has just totally blown me away. So, yeah. Thanks. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. We had voice acting help this week from Duncan Smith and Walter Zweifel.
0: Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Muscal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman.